The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire by Edward Gibbon, Volume Five, Chapter Fifty Eight, Part Four. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter Fifty Eight: The First Crusade, Part Four. Recording by Claude Banta. I have expiated with pleasure on the first steps of the Crusaders, as they paint the manners and character of Europe, but I shall abridge the tedious and uniform narrative of their blind achievements, which were performed by strength and are described by ignorance. From their first station in the neighborhood of Nicomedia, they advanced in successive divisions, passed the contracted limit of the Greek Empire, opened a road through the hills, and commenced, by the siege of his capital, their pious warfare against the Turkish sultan. His kingdom of Raum extended from the Hellespont to the confines of Syria, and barred the pilgrimage of Jerusalem. His name was Kilij Arslan, or Solomon, of the race of Seljuk, and son of the first conqueror, and in the defense of a land which the Turks had considered as their own, he deserved the praise of his enemies, by whom alone he is known to posterity. Yielding to the first impulse of the torrent, he deposited his family and treasure in Nice, retired to the mountains with fifty thousand horse, and twice descended to assault the camps or quarters of the Christian besiegers, which formed an imperfect circle of above six miles. The lofty and solid walls of Nice were covered by a deep ditch, and flanked by three hundred and seventy towers, and on the verge of Christendom the Moslems were trained in arms, and inflamed by religion. Before this city the French princes occupied their stations, and prosecuted their attacks, without correspondence or subordination. Emulation prompted their valor, but their valor was sullied by cruelty, and their emulation degenerated into envy and civil discord. In the siege of Nice, the arts and engines of antiquity were employed by the Latins, the mine and the battering ram, the tortoise and the belfry or movable turret, artificial fire and the catapult and ballast, the sling and the crossbow for the casting of stones and darts. In the space of seven weeks, much labor and blood were expended, and some progress, especially by Count Raymond, was made on the side of the besiegers but the Turks could protract their resistance and secure their escape as long as they were masters of the Lake Oscanius, which stretches several miles to the westward of the city. The means of conquest were supplied by the prudence and industry of Alexius. A great number of boats was transported on sledges from the sea to the lake. They were filled with the most dexterous of his archers. The flight of the Sultana was intercepted, Nice was invested by land and water, and a Greek emissary persuaded the inhabitants to accept his master's protection, and to save themselves by a timely surrender from the rage of the savages of Europe. In the moment of victory, or at least of hope, the crusaders, thirsting for blood and plunder, were awed by the imperial banner that streamed from the citadel, and Alexius guarded, with jealous vigilance, this important conquest. The murmurs of the chiefs were stifled by honor or interest, and after a halt of nine days, 
they directed their march towards Phrygia under the guidance of a Greek general, whom they suspected of a secret connivance with the sultan. The consort and the principal servants of Solomon had been honorably restored without ransom, and the emperor's generosity to the miscreants was interpreted as treason to the Christian cause. Solomon was rather provoked than dismayed by the loss of his capital. He admonished his subjects and allies of this strange invasion of the western barbarians. The Turkish emirs obeyed the call of loyalty or religion. The Turkmen hordes encamped round his standard, and his whole force is loosely stated by the Christians at two hundred or even three hundred and sixty thousand horse. Yet he patiently waited till they had left behind them the sea and the Greek frontier, and hovering on the flanks observed their careless and confident progress in two columns beyond the view of each other. Some miles before they could reach Doliram in Phrygia, the left and least numerous division was surprised and attacked, and almost oppressed by the Turkish cavalry. The heat of the weather, the clouds of arrows, and the barbarous onset overwhelmed the crusaders. They lost their order and confidence, and the fainting fight was sustained by the personal valor rather than by the military conduct of Bohemond, Tancred, and Robert of Normandy. They were revived by the welcome banners of Duke Godfrey, who flew to their succor, with the Count of Vermandois and sixty thousand horse, and was followed by Raymond of Thoulouse, the Bishop of Poy, and the remainder of the sacred army. Without a moment's pause, they formed in new order, and advanced to a second battle. They were received with equal resolution, and in their common disdain for the unwarlike people of Greece and Asia, it was confessed on both sides that the Turks and the Franks were the only nations entitled to the appellation of soldiers. Their encounter was varied and balanced by the contrast of arms and discipline, of the direct charge and wheeling evolutions, of the couched lance and the brandished javelin, of a weighty broadsword and a crooked saber, of cumbrous armor and thin flowing robes, and of the long parter bow and the arbalist or crossbow, a deadly weapon yet unknown to the Orientals. As long as the horses were fresh and the quivers full, Solomon maintained the advantage of the day, and four thousand Christians were pierced by the Turkish arrows. In the evening swiftness yielded to strength. On either side the numbers were equal, or at least as great as any ground could hold or any generals could manage. But in turning the hills, the last division of Raymond and his provincials was led, perhaps without design, on the rear of an exhausted enemy, and the long contest was determined. Besides a nameless and unaccounted multitude, three thousand pagan knights were slain in the battle and pursuit. The camp of Solomon was pillaged, and in the variety of precious spoil, the curiosity of the Latins was amused with foreign arms and apparel, and the new aspect of dromedaries and camels. The importance of the victory was proved by the hasty retreat of the sultan. Reserving ten thousand guards of the relics of his army, Solomon evacuated the kingdom of Raum, and hastened to implore the aid and kindle the resentment of his eastern brethren. In a march of five hundred miles, the crusaders traversed the lesser Asia, through a wasted land and deserted towns, without finding either a friend or an enemy. The geographer may trace the position of Doliram, 
Antioch of Pisidia, Iconium, Archelaus, and Germanicia, and may compare those classic appellations with the modern names of Eskishir, the old city, Akshir, the white city, Cogni, Erechiel, and Marash. As the pilgrims passed over a desert where a draught of water is exchanged for silver, they were tormented by intolerable thirst, and on the banks of the first rivulet their haste and intemperance were still more pernicious to the disorderly throng. They climbed with toil and danger the steep and slippery sides of Mount Taurus. Many of the soldiers cast away their arms to secure their footsteps, and had not terror preceded their van, the long and trembling file might have been driven down the precipice by a handful of resolute enemies. Two of their most respectable chiefs, the Duke of Lorraine and the Count of Thoulouse, were carried in litters. Raymond was raised, as it is said by a miracle, from a hopeless malady, and Godfrey had been torn by a bear, as he pursued that rough and perilous chase in the mountains of Pisidia. To improve the general consternation, the cousin of Bohemond and the brother of Godfrey were detached from the main army with their respective squadrons of five and of seven hundred knights. They overran in a rapid career the hills and sea-coast of Cilicia, from Cogni to the Syrian gates. The Norman standard was planted on the walls of Tarsus and Malmistra, but the proud injustice of Baldwin at length provoked the patient and generous Italian, and they turned their consecrated swords against each other in a private and profane quarrel. Honor was the motive, and fame the reward of Tancray, but fortune smiled on the more selfish enterprise of his rival. He was called to the assistance of a Greek or Armenian tyrant, who had been suffered under the Turkish yoke to reign over the Christians of Edessa. Baldwin accepted the character of his son and champion, but no sooner was he introduced into the city than he inflamed the people to the massacre of his father, occupied the throne and treasure, extended his conquests over the hills of Armenia and the plain of Mesopotamia, and founded the first principality of the Franks or Latins, which subsisted fifty-four years beyond the Euphrates. Before the Franks could enter Syria, the summer and even the autumn were completely wasted. The siege of Antioch, or the separation and repose of the army during the winter season, was strongly debated in their council. The love of arms and the holy sepulture urged them to advance, and reason perhaps was on the side of resolution, since every hour of delay abates the fame and force of the invader, and multiplies the resources of defensive war. The capital of Syria was protected by the river Orontes, and the iron bridge of nine arches derives its name from the massy gates of the two towers, which are constructed at either end. They were opened by the sword of the Duke of Normandy. His victory gave entrance to three hundred thousand crusaders, an account which may allow some scope for losses and desertion, but which clearly detects much exaggeration in the review of Nice. In the description of Antioch, it is not easy to define a middle term between her ancient magnificence under the successors of Alexander and Augustus and the modern aspect of Turkish desolation. The Tetropolis, or four cities, if they retained their name and position, must have left a large vacuity in a circumference of twelve miles, 
and that measure, as well as the number of four hundred towers, are not perfectly consistent with the five gates, so often mentioned in the history of the siege, yet Antioch must have still flourished as a great and populous capital. At the head of the Turkish emirs, Bagision, a veteran chief, commanded in the place. His garrison was composed of six or seven thousand horse, and fifteen or twenty thousand foot. One hundred thousand Moslems are said to have fallen by the sword, and their numbers were probably inferior to the Greeks, Armenians, and Syrians, who had been no more than fourteen years the slaves of the house of Seljuk. From the remains of a solid and stately wall, it appears to have arisen to the height of threescore feet in the valleys, and wherever less art and labor had been applied, the ground was supposed to be defended by the river, the morass, and the mountains. Notwithstanding these fortifications, the city had been repeatedly taken by the Persians, the Arabs, the Greeks, and the Turks. So large a circuit must have yielded many previous points of attack, and in a siege that was formed about the middle of October, the vigor of the execution could alone justify the boldness of the attempt. Whatever strength and valor could perform in the field was abundantly discharged by the champions of the cross. In the frequent occasions of sallies, of forage, of the attack and defense of convoys, they were often victorious, and we can only complain that their exploits are sometimes enlarged beyond the scale of probability and truth. The sword of Godfrey divided a Turk from the shoulder to the haunch, and one half of the infidel fell to the ground, while the other was transported by his horse to the city gate. As Robert of Normandy rode against his antagonist, I devote thy head, he piously exclaimed, to the demons of hell, and that head was instantly cloven to the breast by the resistless stroke of his descending falchion. But the reality, or the report of such gigantic prowess, must have taught the Moslems to keep within their walls, and against those walls of earth or stone, the sword and the lance were unavailing weapons. In the slow and successive labors of a siege, the crusaders were supine and ignorant, without skill to contrive, or money to purchase, or industry to use, the artificial engines and implements of assault. In the conquest of Nice, they had been powerfully assisted by the wealth and knowledge of the Greek emperor. His absence was poorly supplied by some Genoese and Pitian vessels, that were attracted by religion or trade to the coast of Syria. The stores were scanty, the return precarious, and the communication difficult and dangerous. Indolence or weakness had prevented the Franks from investing the entire circuit, and the perpetual freedom of two gates relieved the wants and recruited the garrison of the city. At the end of seven months, after the ruin of their cavalry, and an enormous loss by famine, desertion, and fatigue, the progress of the crusaders was imperceptible, and their success remote. If the Latin Ulysses, the artful and ambitious Bohemond, had not employed the arms of cunning and deceit, the Christians of Antioch were numerous and discontented. Phyraus, a Syrian renegado, had acquired the favor of the emir and the command of three towers, and the merit of his repentance disguised to the Latins, and perhaps to himself, the foul design of perfidy and treason. A secret correspondence, for their mutual interest, was soon established between Phyraus and the prince of Tarento, 
and Bohemond declared in the council of the chiefs that he could deliver the city into their hands. But he claimed the sovereignty of Antioch as the reward of his service, and the proposal which had been rejected by the envy was at length extorted from the distress of his equals. The nocturnal surprise was executed by the French and Norman princes, who ascended in person the scaling ladders that were thrown from the walls. Their new proselyte, after the murder of his too scrupulous brother, embraced and introduced the servants of Christ. The army rushed through the gates, and the Moslems soon found that although mercy was hopeless, resistance was impotent. But the citadel still refused to surrender, and the victims themselves were speedily encompassed and besieged by the innumerable forces of Kerboga, prince of Mosul, who, with twenty-eight Turkish emirs, advanced to the deliverance of Antioch. Five-and-twenty days the Christians spent on the verge of destruction, and the proud lieutenant of the caliph and the sultan left them only the choice of servitude or death. In this extremity they collected the relics of their strength, sallied from the town, and in a single memorable day annihilated or dispersed the host of Turks and Arabians, which they might safely report to have consisted of six hundred thousand men. Their supernatural allies I shall proceed to consider. The human causes of the victory of Antioch were the fearless despair of the Franks, and the surprise, the discord, perhaps the errors of their unskillful and presumptuous adversaries. The battle is described with as much disorder as it was fought, but we may observe the tent of Kerboga, a movable and spacious palace, enriched with the luxury of Asia, and capable of holding above two thousand persons. We may distinguish his three thousand guards, who were cased, the horse as well as the men, in complete steel. In the eventful period of the siege and defense of Antioch, the crusaders were alternately exalted by victory or sunk in despair, either swelled with plenty or emaciated with hunger. A speculative reasoner might suppose that their faith had a strong and serious influence on their practice, and that the soldiers of the cross, the deliverers of the holy sepulchre, prepared themselves by a sober and virtuous life for the daily contemplation of martyrdom. Experience blows away this charitable illusion, and seldom does the history of profane war display such scenes of intemperance and prostitution as were exhibited under the walls of Antioch. The grove of Daphne no longer flourished, but the Syrian air was still impregnated with the same vices. The Christians were seduced by every temptation that nature either prompts or reprobates. The authority of the chiefs was despised, and sermons and edicts were alike fruitless against those scandalous disorders, not less pernicious to military discipline than repugnant to evangelic purity. In the first days of the siege and the possession of Antioch, the Franks consumed with wanton and thoughtless prodigality the frugal subsistence of weeks and months. The desolate country no longer yielded a supply, and from that country they were at length excluded by the arms of the besieging Turks. Disease, the faithful companion of want, was envenomed by the rains of the winter, the summer heats, unwholesome food, and the close imprisonment of multitudes. The pictures of famine and pestilence are always the same, 
and always disgustful, and our imagination may suggest the nature of their sufferings and their resources. The remains of treasure or spoil were eagerly lavished in the purchase of the vilest nourishment, and dreadful must have been the calamities of the poor, since, after paying three marks of silver for a goat and fifteen for a lean camel, the Count of Flanders was reduced to beg a dinner, and Duke Godfrey to borrow a horse. Sixty thousand horse had been reviewed in the camp. Before the end of the siege they were diminished to two thousand, and scarcely two hundred fit for service could be mustered on the day of battle. Weakness of body and terror of mind extinguished the ardent enthusiasm of the pilgrims, and every motive of honor and religion was subdued by the desire of life. Among the chiefs, three heroes may be found without fear or reproach. Godfrey of Bouillon was supported by his magnanimous piety, Bohemond by ambition and interest, and Tancred declared, in the true spirit of chivalry, that as long as he was at the head of forty knights, he would never relinquish the enterprise of Palestine. But the Count of Thoulouse and Provence was suspected of a voluntary indisposition. The Duke of Normandy was recalled from the seashore by the censures of the church. Hugh the Great, though he led the vanguard of the battle, embraced an ambiguous opportunity of returning to France, and Stephen, Count of Chartres, basely deserted the standard which he bore and the council in which he presided. The soldiers were discouraged by the flight of William, Viscount of Melun, surnamed the Carpenter, from the weighty strokes of his axe, and the saints were scandalized by the fall of Peter the Hermit, who, after arming Europe against Asia, attempted to escape from the penance of a necessary fast. Of the multitude of recreant warriors, the names, says an historian, are blotted from the book of life, and the opprobrious epithet of the rope-dancers was applied to the deserters who dropped in the night from the walls of Antioch. The emperor Alexius, who seemed to advance to the succor of the Latins, was dismayed by the assurance of their hopeless condition. They expected their fate in silent despair. Oaths and punishments were tried without effect, and to rouse the soldiers to the defense of the walls, it was found necessary to set fire to their quarters. For their salvation and victory, they were indebted to the same fanaticism which had led them to the brink of ruin. In such a cause, and in such an army, visions, prophecies, and miracles were frequent and familiar. In the distress of Antioch, they were repeated with unusual energy and success. St. Ambrose had assured a pious ecclesiastic that two years of trial must precede the season of deliverance and grace. The deserters were stopped by the presence and reproaches of Christ himself. The dead had promised to arise and combat with their brethren. The virgin had obtained the pardon of their sins, and their confidence was revived by a visible sign, the seasonable and splendid discovery of the holy lance. The policy of their chiefs has on this occasion been admired, and might surely be excused, but a pious bod is seldom produced by the cool conspiracy of many persons, and a voluntary impostor might depend on the support of the wise and the credulity of the people. Of the diocese of Marcel, there was a priest of low cunning and loose manners, 
and his name was Peter Bartholomew. He presented himself at the door of the council chamber to disclose an apparition of St. Andrew, which had been thrice reiterated in his sleep with a dreadful menace, if he presumed to suppress the commands of heaven. At Antioch, said the apostle, in the church of my brother St. Peter, near the high altar, is concealed the steel head of the lance that pierced the side of our Redeemer. In three days that instrument of eternal, and now temporal, salvation will be manifested to his disciples. Search, and ye shall find, bear it aloft in battle, and that mystic weapon shall penetrate the souls of the miscreants. The Pope's legate, the Bishop of Poi, affected to listen with coldness and distrust, but the revelation was eagerly accepted by Count Raymond, whom his faithful subject, in the name of the Apostle, had chosen for the guardian of the Holy Lance. The experiment was resolved, and on the third day, after a due preparation of prayer and fasting, the priest of Marcel introduced twelve trusty spectators, among whom were the Count and his chaplain, and the church doors were barred against the impetuous multitude. The ground was opened in the appointed place, but the workmen, who relieved each other, dug to the depth of twelve feet without discovering the object of their search. In the evening, when Count Raymond had withdrawn to his post, and the wary assistants began to murmur, Bartholomew, in his shirt and without shoes, boldly descended into the pit. The darkness of the hour and of the place enabled him to secrete and deposit the head of a Saracen lance, and the first sound, the first gleam of the steel, was saluted with a devout rapture. The holy lance was drawn from its recess, wrapped in a veil of silk and gold, and exposed to the veneration of the crusaders. Their anxious suspense burst forth in a general shout of joy and hope, and the desponding troops were again inflamed with the enthusiasm of valor. Whatever had been the arts, and whatever might be the sentiments of the chiefs, they skillfully improved this fortunate revolution by every aid that discipline and devotion could afford. The soldiers were dismissed to their quarters, with an injunction to fortify their minds and bodies for the approaching conflict, freely to bestow their last pittance on themselves and their horses, and to expect with the dawn of day the signal of victory. On the festival of St. Peter and St. Paul, the gates of Antioch were thrown open. A martial psalm, Let the Lord arise and let his enemies be scattered, was chanted by a procession of priests and monks. The battle array was marshaled in twelve divisions, in honor of the twelve apostles, and the holy lance, in the absence of Raymond, was entrusted to the hands of his chaplain. The influence of his holy relic was felt by the servants and perhaps by the enemies of Christ, and its potent energy was heightened by an accident, a stratagem, or a rumor of a miraculous complexion. Three knights, in white garments and resplendent arms, either issued or seemed to issue from the hills. The voice of Adamar, the Pope's legate, proclaimed them as the martyrs St. George, St. Theodore, and St. Maurice. The tumult of battle allowed no time for doubt or scrutiny, and the welcome apparition dazzled the eyes or the imagination of a fanatic army. In the season of danger and triumph, the revelation of Bartholomew of Marcel was unanimously asserted, but as soon as the temporary service was accomplished, 
the personal dignity and liberal arms which the Count of Thoulouse derived from the custody of the Holy Lance provoked the envy and awakened the reason of his rivals. A Norman clerk presumed to sift, with a philosophic spirit, the truth of the legend, the circumstances of the discovery, and the character of the prophet, and the pious Bohemond described their deliverance to the merits and intercession of Christ alone. For a while the provincials defended their national palladium, with clamors and arms and new visions condemned to death and hell, the profane skeptics who presumed to scrutinize the truth and merit of the discovery. The prevalence of incredulity compelled the author to submit his life and veracity to the judgment of God. A pile of dry faggots, four feet high and fourteen long, was erected in the midst of the camp. The flames burnt fiercely to the elevation of thirty cubits, and a narrow path of twelve inches was left for the perilous trial. The unfortunate priest of Marcel traversed the fire with dexterity and speed, but the thighs and belly were scorched by the intense heat he expired the next day, and the logic of believing minds will pay some regard to his dying protestations of innocence and truth. Some efforts were made by the provincials to substitute a cross, a ring, or a tabernacle in the place of the holy lance, which soon vanished in contempt and oblivion. Yet the revelation of Antioch is gravely asserted by succeeding historians, and such is the progress of credulity, that miracles most doubtful on the spot and at the moment will be received with implicit faith at a convenient distance of time and space. The prudence or fortune of the Franks had delayed their invasion till the decline of the Turkish Empire. Under the manly government of the three first sultans, the kingdoms of Asia were united in peace and justice, and the innumerable armies which they led in person were equal in courage and superior in discipline to the barbarians of the West. But at the time of the Crusades, the inheritance of Malek Shah was disputed by his four sons. Their private ambition was insensible of the public danger, and in the vicissitudes of their fortune, the royal vassals were ignorant or regardless of the true object of their allegiance. The twenty-eight emirs who marched with the standard of Kerboga were his rivals or enemies. Their hasty levies were drawn from the towns and tents of Mesopotamia and Syria, and the Turkish veterans were employed or consumed in the civil wars beyond the Tigris. The Caliph of Egypt embraced this opportunity of weakness and discord to recover his ancient possessions, and his sultan Afdal besieged Jerusalem and Tyre, expelled the children of Ortok, and restored in Palestine the civil and ecclesiastical authority of the Fatimes. They heard with astonishment of the vast armies of Christians that had passed from Europe to Asia, and rejoiced in the sieges and battles which broke the power of the Turks, the adversaries of their sect and monarchy. But the same Christians were the enemies of the Prophet, and from the overthrow of Nice and Antioch, the motive of their enterprise, which was gradually understood, would urge them forwards to the banks of the Jordan, or perhaps of the Nile. An intercourse of epistles and embassies, which rose and fell with the events of war, was maintained between the throne of Cairo and the camp of the Latins, and their adverse pride was the result of ignorance and enthusiasm. The ministers of Egypt declared in a haughty 
or insinuated in a milder tone, that their sovereign, the true and lawful commander of the faithful, had rescued Jerusalem from the Turkish yoke, and that the pilgrims, if they would divide their numbers, and lay aside their arms, should find a safe and hospitable reception at the sepulture of Jesus. In the belief of their lost condition, the caliph Mostali despised their arms and imprisoned their deputies. The conquest and victory of Antioch prompted him to solicit these formidable champions with gifts of horses and silk robes, of vases and purses of gold and silver, and in his estimate of their merit or power, the first place was assigned to Bohemond, and the second to Godfrey. In either fortune, the answer of the crusaders was firm and uniform. They disdained to inquire into the private claims or possessions of the followers of Mahomet. Whatsoever was his name or nation, the usurper of Jerusalem was their enemy, and instead of prescribing the mode and terms of their pilgrimage, it was only by a timely surrender of the city and province, their sacred right, that he could deserve their alliance, or deprecate their impending and irresistible attack. Yet this attack, when they were within the view and reach of their glorious prize, was suspended above ten months after the defeat of Kerboga. The zeal and courage of the crusaders were chilled in the moment of victory, and instead of marching to improve the consternation, they hastily dispersed to enjoy the luxury of Syria. The causes of this strange delay may be found in the want of strength and subordination. In the painful and various service of Antioch, the cavalry was annihilated. Many thousands of every rank had been lost by famine, sickness, and desertion. The same abuse of plenty had been productive of a third famine, and the alternative of intemperance and distress had generated a pestilence, which swept away above fifty thousand of the pilgrims. Few were able to command, and none were willing to obey. The domestic feuds, which had been stifled by common fear, were again renewed in acts, or at least in sentiments of hostility. The fortune of Baldwin and Bohemond excited the envy of their companions. The bravest knights were enlisted for the defense of their new principalities, and Count Raymond exhausted his troops and treasures in an idle expedition into the heart of Syria. The winter was consumed in discord and disorder, a sense of honor and religion was rekindled in the spring, and the private soldiers, less susceptible of ambition and jealousy, awakened with angry clamors the indolence of their chiefs. In the month of May, the relics of this army proceeded from Antioch to Laodicea, about forty thousand Latins, of whom no more than fifteen hundred horse and twenty thousand foot were capable of immediate service. Their easy march was continued between Mount Libanus and the seashore. Their wants were liberally supplied by the coasting traders of Genoa and Pisa, and they drew large contributions from the emirs of Tripoli, Tyre, Sidon, Acre, and Caesarea, who granted a free passage and promised to follow the example of Jerusalem. From Caesarea they advanced into the Midland country. Their clerks recognized the sacred geography of Leda, Ramla, Emmaus, and Bethlehem, and as soon as they descried the holy city, the crusaders forgot their toils and claimed their reward. End of chapter 58, part 4